You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Alan Dunn and I, Niels Kastrup-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Alan, it is wonderful to have you back this week, which has been pretty busy if you're a Fed watcher. How are you doing? Yeah, good to be back on. It's As you say, it's been a busy time in markets, a a lot of... uh, moves, particularly big moves in equities if you're in technology stocks. So it's it's certainly interesting times. Yeah, it's funny. We always say it's been, you know, a busy time, but it seems like it's just always busy, or at least it has been for quite a long time. Now, we got uh, some great topics that you brought along. And, um, you know, as usual, before we do that, I'm always curious to find out kind of what's been on your radar and kind of what's your big macro uh, picture uh, at the moment. Yeah, well, as you say, it was it was the Fed was the focus this week. So I think that's really, you know, the interesting thing. We had their latest uh, statement of um, our summary of economic projections. And uh, I just thought it was interesting that they've re- slightly raised their forecast for, for growth in 2023 lowered their projection for unemployment and raised their forecast for, for core PCE uh, and obviously um, raised their, their dot plots again with, you know, an expectation of a couple of more rate hikes now. So just interesting, you know, we're 15 months into a tightening cycle. We've had, you know, 500 basis points of rate hikes and and there you have the Fed kind of raising as a rather than reducing their expectations for, for growth. So so um, I think that's interesting. And, and, you know, if you look at how they've adjusted the dot plots, they actually have raised their expectations for, for, for kind of um, the, the year end rate for the Fed funds for this year and next year. That's been raised at, at, at every meeting except um, March of this year when we were in the midst of, of the banking issue. So it's kind of a very much a moving target. Um, but it does beg the question, you know, we've had all of this tightening Where's the slowdown? And you know, if, we, if you if you were to go back to the back end of last year, there was always, you know, almost a, a, a pervasive uh, sense that recession was imminent, and I would have held that view myself. So, I think it's interesting. You know, what's the what's the explanation for this? I think that's that's one thing I'm thinking about. Obviously, you know, monetary policy, you know, respond or the economy responds to, to monetary policy with a lag, and those lags are long and variable. So. So it could be that we're just still in the midst of that process of 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 it impacting the economy, and we'll see the slowdown later on. I mean, a second possible explanation is is you know economists talk about the transmission mechanism of monetary policy. So that's like, what what is the chain of of events that 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 that, that translates from higher rates into slower growth? You know, it's typically borrowing costs go go up and people cut back on, on their borrowing or they save more. Um, so is there something around that that may have changed? And that's possible too. I mean, I think obviously a big story has been the excess savings that, that people accumulated during the uh, COVID crisis. And um, there's one estimate from, I think, the San Francisco Fed, uh, I read during the week saying that there's still, you know, $500 billion of excess savings in the US economy. And it'll be, you know, probably the next year before that's kind of run down. So that's something that's possibly blunting that transmission mechanism. 
Um, fiscal policy is still um, accommodative. You know, the US is, is running a budget deficit of about five, six percent, even at, at at full employment. So that's a support as well. Uh, and you've had, you know, some other structural tailwinds for growth in terms of, you know, with the with the I suppose the nearshoring uh, trend, you know, more factory construction, things like that. Uh, so I think they're all factors which have kind of blunted that transmission mechanism. And also, you know, financial conditions haven't really been tightening for a while. You know, 10-year yields, you know, three and a half, three and three quarters percent. Um, so, you know, just beg the question, you know, although short rates have gone up, we've had this very inverted yield curve. You know, do you need to see higher long-term rates to, to, to really see the economy slowing down? So I think that's another factor as well. You know, obviously, you know, in, in a downturn and the Fed brought rates to zero, the whole point about quantitative easing, all of those policies was to try and bring long-term rates down because the view was that was the key key rate that would influence the economy. And now they're raising rates, but they're not getting that key long-term uh, uh, rate up. So I think that's another factor that's... Um, that's behind, uh, you know, the, 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 this more blunted response to higher rates. So, so overall, yeah, I mean, the theme at the moment, there, obviously there have been some signs of a slowdown. Jobless claims have, have crept up a little bit. But still, you know, I would still expect at some point we'll see a reaction to higher rates. But the question is the timing, and that's, that's the difficult thing. Markets are obviously behaving like, like it's Goldilocks again, and, and, and everything's going to be okay for, for as far as the eye can see. Yeah, no, I mean, a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, first of all, you, you mentioned the Goldilocks. And, and of course, I mean, it is a very, very narrow rally if we turn to kind of the reaction we see in the in the equity markets. And, you know, that's can be of some uh, concern. I think the, the Russell 2000 actually uh, hasn't moved that much and certainly not near uh, its its all-time highs compared to uh, some of the other indices. So I think that's an interesting thing. I wonder whether you see that as a, a little bit of sign of risk somewhere uh, in that. The other sign I would just uh, mention, not that I want to be an alarmist, but I did notice on Friday that the VIX just slipped below 13.5, which I believe is the lowest level since the 14th of February of 2020 when the VIX hit 14 point, uh, sorry, 13.38. And, um, of course, that, ha- that happened to be two days before the S&P hits its high, before the incredibly plunge into the lows of March 23rd, 2020, due to COVID. So, so I mean, it, it might all look great on a Friday uh, or a Saturday morning for you and I, but you just never know what's around the corner. No, for sure. And it's interesting. I, you know, the last time I was on with you here was uh, at the end of April, and markets had been kind of stuck in a range. We were commenting about how the S&P had been trading around 4050 for a long time, and I think it was just under 4200 at that stage, which... A lot of people had been looking at it as a key technical level and probably the, the level that would hold. But obviously, since we since then, we've seen a break to the upside. You know, the S and P is up about six percent since the, since the end of uh, end of April. But the Nasdaq's up, up what about seventeen percent, and it's up thirty percent from from where it was at the start of March. Um, and as you say, breadth has certainly been an issue. Uh, Russell, the Russell two thousand. It's okay. It's jumped up a little bit in the last couple of weeks, but by and large, it's been flat. You know, European equities had a run-up at the start of the year, but they've kind of turned flat as well. Obviously, Japanese equities have been doing phenomenally well. But it's it's a, it's, it's kind of like we've had this rolling rally. You know, if you went back to last December, it was more like the industrials and materials that that, that, that were moving. But that, as we say, that, that's kind of stalled out. Now it's very much... Uh, focused on 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 technology and uh, it feels like a classic trend move you know it's, it's it feels like 
you know, you'd have to say rising prices are now influencing sentiment. You know, it's, it's such a persistent move up. Um, like I think, okay, the Nasdaq closed slightly lower yesterday, but it had been kind of six or seven days in a row when I saw a statistic in um, that the volume of coal buying on the S&P was at an all-time high. So certainly it feels like a bit of a, a FOMO move, fear of missing out. Um, you know, is it a bubble or not? Yeah, we both will have our views on that. Uh, but at the moment, it's it's a trend and, and that trend is is influencing sentiment um, and, and, you know, fueling further buying. Absolutely. It's influencing sentiment. It certainly also influenced performance of trend followers. But before we get to that, you mentioned one thing about this, you know, savings were, you know, uh, pretty high and healthy. And I, I just wonder, I mean, clearly, Powell wasn't too happy about the PCE, even, even though it's coming down, it's still like twice the level they want to see that. And, and I wonder whether this, uh, you know, high level of savings, um, combined with a 5% interest that you suddenly get, actually spurs more spending meaning suddenly people can spend more money and especially in the service sector where you are starting to see you know certainly uh, higher wages come through etc etc i mean it's not an easy job to be a fed uh, official that's for sure and it's obviously very easy for us to criticize some of the things they've done in the past uh, which i'm sure we'll continue to do but but still but still it is a um, it's a comp- it's a as we as we often say it's a complex adaptive system we're operating in and uh, and therefore, these uh, effects um, are important. I couldn't help uh, noticing some of the headlines. Uh, I don't know if you pay attention. Uh, no, normally, I don't, but someone had summarized some of them for me. Um, but in the last 10 days, in some of the mainstream media, uh, June 8th, CNN, it's official. We're in a new bull market. Barron's June 8th, don't fear the bull market. Why, why stocks are heading higher? June 10th, Yahoo Finance, new bull market has legs. The bear market is officially over. And then a couple of days ago, Market Watch, the bulls finally controlled the stock market and the signs are pointing higher. Yes. So, I mean, what could possibly go wrong yeah. with those headlines? Yeah, exactly. Right? It's the classic, uh, all we need now is the economists to come out and say <laughs> there's a new bull market in equities and it'll be a clear sell sign. But you're right. I mean, it's interesting. You, you touch on the higher rates and, and I think... There, there are so many factors, and that's why these lags with monetary policy are so variable and, and uncertain, because, you know, it, it depends on the demographic composition of, of, of the economy as well. You know, if you have a lot of people who are, maybe if you have a larger, older population, people will maybe save more and they benefit from the higher rates. Um, and obviously, the other point is, you know, people locked in you know, lower rates uh, after COVID, particularly with respect to mortgage rates in, in the US. Obviously, you're starting to see in the UK now, uh, mortgage rates are adjusting and, and, and people are scrambling to kind of to, to lock in rates. Yeah, I mean, and most of the econometric models are kind of, at least my understanding is they're kind of based on kind of broad sensitivities. You know, historically, if rates go up X percent, how much does that impact on, cons- on consumer demand? But obviously, that doesn't account for the fact that the you know, the composition of the workforce uh, and, and, and in terms of demographics and inequality, etc., will change over time. So it is very d- difficult. Uh, you know, it's an almost impossible task. Um, but that, as you say, we'll, we'll probably continue to criticize <laughs> and point out their, their, their failings over time. What else should we be doing every week? Now, uh, kidding aside, I mean, just final point before we jump to the trend following and all the great topics uh, that we're going to discuss. 
And, you know, although I have lived in Switzerland for a very long time, I do probably follow the Danish economy a little bit closer just because I watch the news there. And it is interesting, and I wonder whether this can be applied to many other countries, because I think we're all a little bit surprised when we see the resilience of the economies. I mean, in Denmark, they have the they have more people ever employed in history. I mean, never have so many Danes been employed, uh, let alone having a very low uh, unemployment rate. Um, but I was just uh, speaking to uh, a friend of mine uh, this week, and he was saying, well, you know, that one of his sons were had got a new job. Uh, he's still young. I think he might just be finishing his master's right now. Um, but he was working in, H- in HR, and um, for, uh, I think it was a, uh, I can't remember what sector he was in. Um, could could be medicine, I'm not sure. But anyways, or pharmaceutical. But he was saying, this company alone was going from something like 20,000 employees to 40,000 employees in the next three years. Not just all of them in Denmark, but it's just the, when you hear numbers like that, the the plans of expansion, and maybe as you rightly pointed out, I mean, obviously the onshoring um, perhaps should not be underestimated in terms of, uh, of what's going on. We've obviously seen some pretty weak numbers out of China compared to what people have expected. So may- maybe things are just shifting. Uh, and then obviously combined with the demographics, maybe we're just all sitting here using old, uh, old style um, sort of measures uh, and, and, and missing some of these underlying currents that sometimes can be quite hard to, uh, to detect. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's interesting you're talking about job growth. I mean, the, the the theme that I've been picking up in the last couple of weeks has been more about concerns about all of our jobs, that, that we won't have jobs in five years' time because of AI, which is, um, you know, that's the, the, the other side of it, which... Um, we, which we'll talk yeah, about very yeah. shortly. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, let me just quickly run uh, through uh, the trend following site because uh, it, was, it wasn't just the stocks that had a great week. Uh, trend followers did as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, even, and what's really interesting about this is that I think a lot of investors focus on trend following uh, from a crisis protection um, point of view, the ability for trend followers to make money when equity markets are having a difficult time. Um, this week and the last few weeks has been really a really good example of the ability of capturing trends during times of optimism. Uh, and uh, so so that's uh, kind of great to see uh, the other side because, as we know, it's only a few months ago when trend followers were doing well at a time when equities were struggling. Now, the losing team this week was clearly the commodities, not from a price point of view, but actually from a trend following point of view because a lot of the downtrends in commodities came under attack uh, Due to this wave of optimism that we've experiencing, and so uh, so we did see some uh, money being given back in the commodity sector, but all was not lost um, because there were some a, a few commodities that enjoyed some uh, some positivity, uh, especially in the soft sectors, where we had a particularly sweet trend for sugar uh, to the upside. Now the real winners this week was really the financials. Equities uh, were charging ahead. And, and trend followers, as has been publicized uh, in, in in some of these articles a few months ago about how trend followers would be triggering buys into further
further equity prices uh, moving higher. Uh, well, we certainly have been long for equities for a little bit now and uh, are enjoying some of those uh, up moves. We're also enjoying still uh, continued short exposure in fixed income, even though it's not moving significantly, it's still moving in quote unquote the right direction for trend followers. And then currencies, they seem to sort of still find some inspiration in the Mexican peso and the Japanese yen. Now, my own trend barometer continues to close in the neutral to weak level, most likely because the um, parameters I use in the trend barometer is on the more on the shorter term side of things. And if we just uh, go through the numbers, people will also realize that actually shorter term strategies have struggled more this year than the longer term. So speaking of which, BTOP50 up 45 basis points as of Thursday, down one and a quarter for the month of June. Sokgen CT index up half a percent, down just shy of 1% for the year. Trend index up half a percent as well, down one and a half or 1.4% for the year. And the short-term trainers index putting in uh, nine, 39 basis points so far in June, but still down almost 3% for the year. Now, of course, stocks doing really well, up almost 6% in both uh, the MSCI world and the S&P, and up double digit for the year, 138 uh, and 158 respectively. Bonds are losing a little bit of ground this month, as you would expect with uh, these statements coming out of the Fed. Now, Alan, you already um, you already alluded to that we have um, actually some pretty varying topics today. Uh, the first one uh, is certainly out of my uh, comfort zone, so uh, I'll be guided by you. It probably is out of most people's comfort zone in the sense that we don't really know what we're dealing with here. Um, but then we're going to bring it back to some uh, trend-following stuff. A uh, great paper from Katie Kaminsky. We're going to revisit maybe briefly some of Quantica's findings, but also we, you've been in the archives this week, my friend because you have been digging out some old papers from Transtrend, which will be fun to, uh, to see what your, uh, uh, what your findings are. And then, of course, a last topic we're going to talk about is risk management, which is really important in everything we do. So, Alan, AI, the economic potential of uh, generative AI, the next productivity frontier, What's that all about? Well, you're right. I mean, I feel equally out of my depth on AI as well. But um, I mean, we've been talking about about equity markets, and and it's just, um, I mean, it seems, uh, you know, obvious to say. I mean, I think AI has been a big theme here and a big influence. And 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 I think if you look at the performance of the Nasdaq in the last few months, you really get a sense of that. You know, as I say, up thirty percent since the start of March. You know, what's happened in that period? Well. Firstly, you had the banking crisis and, you know, the, 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 there was a lot of liquidity injected into the market. So stocks went up on that. But then obviously, um, you know, uh, we got over the banking issue and, well, seem to have for the moment. And yields started to rise. So notwithstanding what I was saying, that yields are not that high, but they, they are higher than they were at the start of March. And normally you would expect to see uh, the NASDAQ to struggle in that type of environment of higher yields. But we've seen a disconnect in that relationship because obviously technology stocks are, are kind of long duration assets, their cash flows are far in the future. So typically a higher yields is, is a headwind for, for, for technology stocks. And equally, it's, I just thought it was interesting in the last few months, You've seen a disconnect between technology stocks and, and crypto, whereas if you went back over the last two to three years, they tended to be quite highly correlated as kind of speculative assets or positive growth. But we've also seen a disconnect there. So I think the the, the thing, the, the factor that has really propelled um, 
obviously technology higher has been AI. So that's kind of prompted me to to look into it in, in a bit more detail. And it was interesting, McKinsey had a paper out this week um, talking, as you say, about uh, um, the economic potential of generative AI, which is quite an interesting read. It's 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 very upbeat for 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 the, for, for the long term. Uh, and what they've done in this paper is they've looked at kind of six, what they say sixty three use cases of um, of generative uh, AI. So this is kind of basically kind of like chat GBT type type functions um, where uh, the um, the machine is able to generate that uh, kind of content and responses and understand um, language. Um, so they, they focus on these uh, 63 use cases to kind of get an estimate of the economic impact. So just to give you a sense of some of the highlights, um, you know, the estimate kind of between 2.6 to 4.4 trillion dollars annually of benefits. So you know, that's a decent sized number, you know, to put in context, US GDP is about 25, 26 trillion dollars. So, so it's, you know, fairly meaningful uh, impact. Um, they're saying that a lot of this technology could automate between 60 to 70% of, of tasks, uh, particularly for knowledge workers. And they were saying that uh, knowledge workers, so kind of white collar workers, typically spend about 20% of their time searching for and gathering information. So, so these are the types of applications where they think there's the real benefit. And the focus on, on kind of four main areas, kind of customer, customer operations, um, you know, so I guess interacting with a robot, which we're obviously starting to see that in, in lots of cases, but more and more of that. Um, but equally, assistance for a human um, in that in, in that uh, regard. And, and they, they, they mention how Morgan Stanley are building an AI assistant using uh, GBT4 basically to, to help the, their, their wealth managers respond quickly to, to client queries. So somebody, I guess, could have a question in the market and you would consult with your internal um uh, GPT-4 tool uh, to, to get to kind of get 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 a quicker response. So the other areas, uh, marketing and sales. So even content generation potential there. Obviously, software engineering, writing code, uh, and R and D. So even kind of generating content are all the kind of areas of of possible benefit. Um, and from an economic perspective, then they say this could increase labor productivity by between 0.1 and and 0.6 percent. So. I mean, that's pretty important because, you know, economic growth, there's two factors that, that determine growth over the long term. One is population growth and the second is productivity growth. So if you can get that kind of um, higher productivity, it, it, it's obviously very important uh, from, from, from an economic growth perspective. So, so I mean, the, the, they, they were the highlights of, of, um, of, of the piece. Obviously, it's, it's, uh, it's talking about these, these benefits coming in the future. Now, they do say... You know, they, they kind of say like half of these half of activities could be automated between 2030 and 2060. So it's that kind of time frame we're talking about. It's not necessarily this year or next year, but but certainly over the next kind of uh, couple of couple of decades. So it kind of got me thinking about okay, so that's what that's the kind of the the expert view on how this is going to play out. So what should we see from that perspective in terms of the markets? You know, and obviously as they say. It, 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 it's going to be enhancing productivity. Um, so, you know, from an economic perspective, that's that's what you would call an outward shift in aggregate supply. So basically, it should be disinflationary over time uh, because we can produce more with, with fewer fewer resources. 
So that's a, that's a, that's a positive. Obviously, who's going to benefit? Well, you would say it's the owners of capital should should benefit because they can get workers to do more with you know with less. Um, so that would should should be good for margins and obviously good good for growth. You know, there are risks associated with and challenges associated with this. Obviously, if you have fewer workers required for certain tasks, you know, people will be displaced. So then they have to be retrained. Um, and you could have tensions around that, obviously, to the extent that that AI leads to higher unemployment. You know, uh, you know, it, in theory, then those resources can be redeployed elsewhere, which is true. But in the short term, you could have tensions around that. And how do you manage that? How do you retrain that? How do you retrain people? So I think that's an interesting thing. Um, and then obviously you have the the whole area of the risks and the threats and the misuse of AI as well. So that's 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 a potential negative. But it's interesting when you think about that versus what we're seeing in the markets. What we're seeing in the market at the moment, it's very much focused on, on you know, where is the spend going to come from? That like who's going to immediately benefit from this? So it's it's kind of the chip makers, the likes of Nvidia, you know, in theory. You know, banks are going to benefit as much from this, but we're not seeing a big run-up in banking stocks on an AI boom. We're seeing, you know, what we're seeing is uh, obviously, I suppose, the business is closer to where we might see potential spend. But obviously, you know, and 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 stocks like Nvidia trading at forty times sales. So there's a huge amount of kind of expectation and and optimism around this. But so the question really is, will that IT spend come through or not? So so I think from in terms of assessing, is this a valid rally in these stocks or not. And, um, you know, it's an open question. Of course, we're going to see a structural tailwind there, but that's not to say we can't see in a downturn, you know, what happens in an economic downturn. The first thing that gets cut back is spending on IT and software and stuff like that. So, so it does feel like people are looking at this broad macro factor, which is obviously going to be a big, important driver for the global economy over the next number of decades, but translating it into a very specific optimistic view on on a certain number of stocks will that be proved to be the case proved to be too optimistic or not hard to know i mean but you could have a scenario like we had in 2000 where yes the, the development of the internet was transformational but that's not to say that those stocks weren't overvalued for at that point and you know we, we could certainly see something similar this time around no, I think that that's a great point. And uh, I mean, there's so many thoughts uh, about this, and I'm certainly no expert in this. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, next week on Wednesday, we're going to publish uh, our first episode in a new series um, that we call Galactic Macro, where we're going to touch on some of these a uh, little bit out there type of topics that's being revealed at the moment. But it does link to AI, in my opinion. And I remember the first recording we did uh, with a guy, a young guy called Jay Anderson. And one of the comments he made uh, when we kind of touched on, uh, and I say we, it's actually uh, a guy called David Dole who's hosting this. But when they were talking about AI, uh, I remember Jay mentioning that he thought that with AI, this is different. Because it's out in the open, I mean, open AI is obviously very much uh, front and center with ChatGPT. He he was very concerned about people investing in this, putting a lot of money behind it, because as he 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 thought, and I hope I'm not misquoting him, that things are moving so quickly in the open AI space that it's moving faster than any of these companies individually can kind of keep up. Now, I'm not talking about NVIDIA specifically. I have no idea what they really do, and maybe they're the only ones who can do uh, what they do, so to speak. But 
but I kind of see that. You kind of see how much progress and, and how many... I mean, if you just look at your Twitter feed, I don't know about you, uh, Alan, but mine is full of... Suddenly, it's all full of people who are talking about AI. It certainly wasn't use, uh, usually like that. So, I mean, it's super fascinating. Uh, I think it's scary uh, to, to some extent. Uh, one of the things that also scares me a little bit about it uh, is the fact that I'm not so sure if we look at the global population as a whole that there are that many people who are really paying attention to this um, for, for obvious reasons. We don't, we don't all have computers and iPhones and, and so on and so forth. And um, so I, I wonder how people will react if, if some of these things start to work. Now, you did mention this thing about r robots, uh, and all I can say is if you ever tried one of these robots that tries to help you on a website, like a support robot, I think they could use a little bit of help, uh, frankly. That is not a great experience, in my opinion, uh, when it keeps asking you about questions that you didn't even, uh, that you're not interested in. Um, so maybe there is a little bit of, a, of an upside to improved uh, AI somewhere. Any uh, what, what, anything else that you wanted to talk about this particular thing? I mean, by the way, maybe we should turn it a little bit to the trend-following space. I mean, just just touch well, on well, that. But even beyond, I mean, more broadly, there was an article in the FT um, yesterday. I think it was just talking around how this is presenting. Obviously, obviously, we in our space we know about machine learning for for some time, but other strategies might be using it to read like Twitter feeds or, and they were talking about how. You know, um, I think it was a month ago. Somebody there was a a, a generated a, a fake um, explosion of an image of, of of an explosion. I think it was in the Pentagon or something like that. Um, that that prompted a, a sell-off in the S and P five hundred, which I I hadn't been aware of. But um, but it, it's kind of these kind of things that if you can generate use AI to ge can generate fake content that looks. Uh, um, uh, valid, uh, but and then you have models that are basically, you know, um, you know, scraping uh, the net, looking for 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 for, for uh, new sources, etc., and responding to that. That you can have that obviously, you know, that's that's a challenge for those types of training strategies. So it opens up a whole, you know, whole host of different things. Obviously, and you know, from a trend perspective, and and the use of machine learning, which is is AI. Um, we've been aware of this for some time, and, and it is a topic that came up on our on our um, CTA series. And and I can't remember who it was, but but it was, it was certainly st struck with me. Um, there was a comment from one of the managers that you know. The people who were most expert on AI were most pessimistic about its application in financial markets, whereas the people who were, you know, more uh, less expert were, were, were more optimistic. So, you know, it, it was something that, you know, in the CTA space, maybe going back three or four years ago, everybody was um, kind of focused on machine learning. And if you had a machine learning program, you know, it, it, it seemed to be uh, it was going to, you know, be... Solve, solve all trading problems, but it hasn't proved to be the case, you know, and, uh, you know, one of the papers we'll talk about now in a minute is, is around the pearls of, of machine learning, basically, or, or, or overfitting or overlearning to a particular environment. So, yeah, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think it's going to put, uh, put people in, in, in the investment management world out of business yet, but uh, what, what do you think? Well, I mean, I think just, just just to round that off before we move on to that paper, um, I think it's worth knowing, and this is what make this is really what makes me so you know give me so great conviction in trend following as a strategy, and that is that 
this really is a strategy. And of course, I work for a firm that has lived this for almost 50 years. We have gone through so many quote-unquote revolutions in the markets, right? Uh, the internet came and that was going to change the world, even for trend followers. Uh, then the technology revolution came and that was definitely going to change everything. But, but trend following continues to do what it does and it continues to deliver. Uh, it's incredibly consistent once you zoom out in terms of its long-term uh, returns and, and, and risks and drawdowns and all of that. So... I actually don't think it's going to make a beans of difference. And I know that's a statement that you might come to regret at some point, but I actually don't think it's going to make a big difference for, for from our point of view. Because if you think about what trend following really does, well, even if AI could help make predictions about the future, and I think I may have mentioned this before on a, on a previous uh, episode, even if it could make uh, help you make predictions about the future of a, of a market price and say, oh yeah, but corn is going to move from 600 to 1,000. Okay, well, it's going to go to 650 first and then 700 and then 750. And and those moves are the ones that simple trend-following systems are going to pick up and going to position itself for. So AI or not, I'm not pessimistic about uh, its impact on trend-following. I think we will be will be just fine. Uh, there are so many other things that could uh, impact the financial world in, in a negative way. But even trend following, when you just think about what happened in the last kind of couple of decades, where, where you essentially had central banks keep interest rates at zero, you know, and even negative in some, I mean, that's another extreme event that we had to cope with. And we did. We just found opportunities in other markets um, as well as in bonds, which actually leads us to the next conversation, which is beyond the bond bias, which something is Katie Kaminsky and her research assistant wrote about over at Alpha Simplex. So why don't we just dive straight in? Yeah, it's an interesting paper that that um, Katie and uh, our colleague uh, Ying Shen Zhao have produced around long bias uh, in bonds. So the, the overall, I suppose, idea here is that, you know, I think obviously we had a big sell-off in bonds last year, but that came after a multi-decade rally in bonds. So the question that they were investigating was, you know, had that kind of prompted some managers to build in a bit of a long bond bias into their systems? Um, so, so what they do is they look at the ten largest um, trend-following managers in the U.S. Uh, mutual fund space, and they also look at the stock chain trend index, and they also have their own kind of representative trend-following system. Um, and so then they kind of estimate the uh, bond beta of all of those programs and the index over time, uh, and then compare that versus the representative trend system to see if any of the managers seem to have less of a bond exposure than you might have expected from, from a representative system. So what they do find is quite a bit of dispersion, as you as we always expect. You know, even even at at the end of the year, one, one of the managers was showing a positive bond beta versus all of the others being be negative. And and then there was the usual large spread of like at times, you know, for some some managers uh, the, the the bond beta was maybe in excess of minus one, whereas others it was like minus zero point two. So so quite a bit of dispersion as as, as we often see, so what to do then is is is, is kind of try and estimate, try and examine. Well, why why might be the why might this be the case? They look at the Sockgen CTA index versus the Sockgen trend index to see. Well, is it more kind of a phenomenon of the uh, 
for, for diversified managers, but they actually find a, a, a pretty similar outcome between the two indices. One thing that they did, which is quite interesting, they said, well, what, what impact would it have on, on the, the uh, representative trend system if you limited your shorts in bonds to 50% of the normal um, kind of uh, size that, that the system would, would, would signal? And interestingly, it showed that um, over the kind of the 21 years, so 2000 to 2021, so 22 years, it would it would actually increase your your performance of the system, but then it would cost you about it looked like about seven percent in 2022. So I thought that was quite an interesting uh, outcome because if you think about it, if you come up with a strategy uh, and it does boost your return over over a long period of of time, it's easy to see why people might say, well. This makes sense. Like twenty-one years is quite a long time, you know. Why, why don't we do this? And I actually do know of some managers for for philosophical reasons who don't short bonds at all. So, so that's certainly um, a, a possible explanation to it. Um, I guess the other, the, the main thrust of their of their of their argument is that maybe is it that people just. Um, learned on a particular environment and got conditioned to have less shorts in, in bonds. And, and they show this by using, by basically applying machine learning to, to the bond data. So they look back and uh, say, if you were to apply a simple kind of six month moving average uh, signal to, to, to bonds, um, and if you were to do that from uh, the last, uh, since, since 2000, sorry, they do it from, uh, from 1980 actually. Uh, so what would be the optimal trading strategy just using the six-month moving average you could be long or short and actually what they find is if the moving average is negative you're long or if it's positive you're long so you're long always uh, the only time you kind of reduce your position is when the moving average is very positive so the market has kind of got overextended so basically if the six-month moving average is very negative you're buying because you're expecting you know it's a buy the dip type strategy if, if the moving average is positive you're also long because of momentum but if it's very positive you actually cut back your long and you have a slightly less long position so th- that's what that's how the the model would have learned to trade the bond market if you just look uh, from 1982 to, to 2021 obviously that wouldn't have worked out very well last year because bonds went down the whole year so the interesting thing then is you add in the data from 2022 where we have the, the sort of model and can learn on a period when when bonds are going down that that does Im- impact it a little bit but still you didn't really have many much uh, many instances of being short. Um, so I thought it was interesting that even, you know, we, we sometimes think about when machine learning will learn on the new environment. But even with that, an environment where you clearly would have learned about bonds going down, it still had this uh, quite a notable um, long bias in the system. So what it did then was quite interesting. They then look back, and if you were to apply the data on the period 1962 to 1982, now obviously we didn't have bond futures back then, so what you have to do is basically estimate what the bond futures would have been. You can do that based on, on the yield and, and the change of yield, etc. And it's interesting, the optimal trading strategy for that period, you would have always have been short bonds. So if the moving average is very negative, you're short. Uh, if it's slightly less negative, uh, you're, you're even more short. Even if the moving average is positive, you're, you're still short because bonds tended to go down in that period. Obviously, you know, in the 70s, you had a big bond bear market. Yields went up to 
18, 20 percent. So, so the system, if 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 you were coming up with this machine learning system in 1982 and about to trade the markets, you you would have, you know, you would have got run over because the system would have been always short bonds. So. Um, the final bit, which is which is uh, quite quite neat, when you combine it all together into looking at the full period, 1962 to 19, to, uh, sorry, to 2022, and run the, the the machine on that to see well what's the optimal trading strategy based on the six month moving average, it looks actually very similar to what you would get with a trend following system. So when the moving average is very negative, you tend to be short. As it's less negative, you tend to be less short. When it's positive, you tend to be long. And when it's more positive, you tend to be longer. So uh, it's a very neat, uh, the paper was a very neat way of showing one, the pitfalls of machine learning, and two, that actually, uh, the, the, you know, a trend system is probably the most robust way of approaching it as evidence from from a really long-term data set yeah no i i like that a, a, a lot and obviously speaking from our experience uh, if i wear my dun hat i mean we did trade through uh the 1978 to 81 period where yields went up significantly and that certainly was a very profitable uh, period for trend following uh, without a doubt um, but I'm also, I mean, I've mentioned before on the podcast that I do believe in these cycles, market cycles, um, uh, that, that Howard Marks also write about. And so for me, uh, what we've seen in the last couple of years may really only be the beginning of this new interest rate cycle heading higher for a number of decades, not, not in a straight line. But uh, if you believe in that, and so I really think that the paper in a, in a very uh, nice way uh, illustrates the dangers of these things. And, uh, you know, experience can't be, can't be back-tested. And, and, and this is why, to some extent, even though I don't really want to, I do think it's nice when you have new people coming into the industry with new ideas and all of that stuff. But I do think there is something in our industry to be said about firms that has very long track records and have had these experiences because it's one thing because – and maybe I don't know um, – I'm, I'm sure we have a little bit of time for you know how potential biases can creep into a system unintentionally. You know, for example, by adding new systems or by having filters, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this is some of the dangers that if you don't have a long enough experience and you've only experienced kind of one environment, you might be unintentionally tempted to include stuff that really just works in the um, period that you personally experienced. I know we do back tests a little bit longer than that. But you still might be, be be influenced by your own experience. So I think this is very interesting. And it kind of reminded me, before we move on to the next papers, but it kind of reminded me, Alan, about one of our conversations in the CTA series, which was Roy Niederhofer. Because he wrote back in 2013 or 14 this paper where he basically said, well, you know, trend followers are going to be doomed when interest rate starts to go up. The only way to deal with this is being short term. And of course, um, 2022 comes along and and that doesn't hold true, and so when we confronted him in a in a friendly way, of course, uh, his 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 quick answer was, "Well, I didn't expect the in, the yield curve to invert, uh, so meaning that the roll yield was not as bad uh, of a headwind as, as he expected." But I think we would have made money even without an inverted uh, yield curve from what happened last year. So, in any event, um, having no bias and all of those things, uh, I think, is is pretty important, even though. I will also stress, and this is not just for bonds, 
But you and I also spoke with Brian Proctor recently from EMC, and he did say that they have a long bias in their models across all markets and that that had helped them. And we know that from, from, from research that long side trades and trend following tends to do better. But I'm not sure whether that's influenced by the fact that we've had mostly long sided trades in fixed income, mostly long sided winning trades in equities, maybe when you, when you take the big chick. I, I don't know this, uh, honestly, but I, I think it has, that there is some link to, to that. It's not necessarily that it's good or bad. You know, you could, as I say, I've come across managers who don't short bonds and they say, well, they don't want to be short what they perceive to be a safe haven asset because you can get in crisis spikes higher. And that's, that's fair enough. I mean, it's to, if, if people make that choice, that's fair enough. And then you will know that in an environment like last year, obviously they won't capture that kind of move. Um, I think, I think as you say, the challenge is if you are, you know, doing lots of back tests and you find something that works over 21 years, you might easily say, well, this seems to be something valid. Um, but you could actually be just picking up a bias in, inadvertently. And we certainly got that in a number of conversations in terms of, um, you know, at, at, at Russell at Mann had mentioned that, that uh, how they have to manage researchers and, and overse oversee them, that, that, that that's where the experience comes in, where you look at a system and say, well, actually, you may be doing, you may you may be trading these markets, but actually, what you're picking up on is a strategy that works in an environment when yields are falling and won't necessarily work uh, when when they're not. And you see that, uh, you know, I certainly saw that, you know, in in possibly more in the short term space, you, you know, you saw certain strategies that worked in in the uh, QE type environment and then didn't didn't seem to work out after a period of time. So. I think I think it can you, as long as you know what you're doing, that's fine. It, I think the challenge is if you have some some bias that you picked up inadvertently and you're not aware of it. That's that's where it's problematic. Yeah, and then giving it to an AI where you have no idea what it's doing. Uh, I think that's a res recipe for disaster. Anyways, moving on. I don't know how much you want to talk about the Quantica papers because Nick and I did a some of it last uh, week. Um, so, but feel free. And then, of course, we have the Trans Trend uh, Archive, uh, so to speak, where we're going to be speed skating. We're going to be talking about instability of VAR uh, and also um, the importance of robustness. So, feel free to. Uh, the, the, well, the Quantica paper was was a starting point because I suppose the Quantica, the Transtrend papers, and they all lead into kind of a general um, kind of discussion around risk management. But 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 firstly, the Quantica paper was about when trends end in a rush, and it's all about how you know it's kind of a review of what happened in March. Uh, obviously, in that period with big reversal in short term interest rates, it was a very tough month for. For trend followers, SockGen in, trend index was down 7.7% on the month. So they review that to say, you know, looking at a representative trend system, you know, basically was it the right thing to do in, in terms of having so much risk concentrated in in fixed income? And, and, and based on their representative trend system, they estimated that, you know, fixed income accounted for about 85% of portfolio risk at that time coming into uh, March. So obviously, you'll remember... I think at the start of March, Powell kind of alluded to possibly 50 basis points. So everybody got bearish on fixed income and that the market moved that way and trend followers would have increased shorts. And, and, and according to Quantica in their representative system, you know, the, the system was short across all 23 contracts. And then obviously we had the trend reversal. So 
Um, it wasn't actually a massive short. In terms of 10-year equivalent, it was they estimated about 135%, which, you know, relative to the kind of long positions you would have seen in bonds, you know, during the bond bull market, that's not that large. But obviously what we did see was really extreme moves, particularly at the short end. So like the moves in, I think the two-year yield were, were the largest we've seen since since 1987, you know, since uh, 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 Black Monday. So it was more of a case of really extreme moves. But the big question, would you have been better off if you had kind of reallocated the risk away from fixed income to more of a, a broad kind of uh, kind of lever up the other side of the portfolio and downweight fixed income, even though the, the, the trend opportunities didn't seem to be as evident. And they find, yes, you would have benefited in, in March by doing that. Now, other markets did reverse as well. So you would have, you would have only benefited, um, I, I think you would have reduced the loss by about 4%. But you would have, um, but you would have only gained. Uh, they estimate that the, the overall soft gen trend would only have gained about six and a half percent in 2022 by taking that approach versus um, whatever it was, 27 percent, I think it was. So, so basically saying yes, if you did take that approach, um, you would have done better in 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 in, in March. But I base, I suppose, if you think about it. You know, some of the best periods for trend following tend to be when you get your risk on and the trend extends. And, you know, we only have one version of history. So there could have been a version of history where um, Silicon Valley Bank didn't blow up in March and, and the Fed did 50 and, 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 and the trend continued. So, you know, it's just that's the way things played out. So, so their perspective is that this is just a part of trend following. You, you, you will get these short reversals. Trend following programs respond. They respond to the vol. They'll, they'll cut the risk, and and that's just part and parcel. That that's the kind of the trade off that you're getting those uncomfortable periods in return for the risk premium that you pick up, uh, if you want to call it a risk premium from trend following. So so I thought that was that was interesting. It did get me thinking. You know, I mean, I, I know trans trend. We've had Harold on um, on Top Traders Unplugged, and uh, you know he talked about kind of a a different approach, I guess, and, and I was, you know, went back through some of their their, their previous articles, and it's very much around, um, you know, you know, for example, they don't. When we, when we spoke to Harold, he said they don't use stops, and that was controversial when they were starting out. So you might say, well, is that is that a good risk management technique or not? You might say, oh, that's a bit loose from a risk perspective, but obviously they've been doing it for many years, and now lots of managers don't use stops, so it's not. My, my overall thought on this is, you know, what constitutes good risk management you know is is it necessary to to kind of downscale um in 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 um risk in those kind of sh short sharp shock environments and uh, you know as you've alluded to some of the the, the trans trend papers i'm not going to go into them all but but the ones you've alluded to kind of give a sense on on their approach which is i suppose they're different in a couple of ways one they don't use maybe the same volatility estimate that uh, and, vo and vol measure uh, they say uh, as other managers and they're very much trying to differentiate as they say between a reaction and a trend reversal which is obviously quite quite dif difficult to do but that's kind of the philosophy of maybe not overreacting to these short uh, or these kind of sharp counter trend moves. Um, so, you know, I think it's interesting that we all kind of talk about rigorous risk management and all managers will say that, but actually risk management and managed futures is is probably a lot more subjective than we might think at first, uh, first instance. Like there's a lot of areas where people will differ in, in views. So just obviously, you know, 
on, on a trend reversal, how you respond to that. You know, you might find that actually trend, or if you could come up with a strategy that actually goes against that that, 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 that when you get a reversal, that that's actually a good opportunity. So would that, if you found that, you know, a kind of a mean reversion strategy, would that mean you shouldn't cut your risk uh, when you get these uh, sharp reversals? The use of stop losses, that's another one where people have different views. Um, which vol measure? Um, you know, um, you know, what kind of look back is the right look back? You know, so for example, in 2020, if you had um, a sensitive look back on your vol measure, um, or sorry, m maybe a more of a longer term um, um, vol uh, uh, estimate the the spike in vol that we saw in March might have kept you out of equities for for quite a long time, or might have really constrained your ability to go long in the equity recovery. Whereas if you had a much shorter estimate, as that kind of period rolled out, you would have got back into the uh, equity market as, again. And then also, if you think about the 2020 period as well, uh, the COVID, you know, some managers stopped trading that period. So was that prudent risk management? or not? Or was that a period when you should have been trying to harvest a risk premium? And that's then you have the general issue around intervening uh, around certain events. So, you know, some managers will downweight uh, risk going into events like Brexit, or if there's a, a, an election or a referendum. Uh, and then there's the whole topic of, um, you know, reducing risk in a drawdown. Some managers make a virtue out of saying, you know, if we're down 5%, we're going to cut risk by 10%. If we're down 10, we're, we're cutting risk by 50. But, you know, and another of the, of the, uh, of the trans trend papers is around fast skating, or basically you have to maintain risk in a drawdown to, to, to have the ability to come out of it. So as I was thinking about all of these things, it, it, it strikes me that, it's very easy to kind of identify, you know, poor risk management. We can all say, okay, SVB Bank, they, they, they left themselves wide open there. And there's easy things you can do from a risk management perspective. Obviously, you know, mitigating counterparty risk, you know, things like that, diversification, anything where the benefit is obvious and the cost is, is, is not high. But it's when you have something that, that there's a trade-off or you're giving up something. So obviously, if you down your, reduce your vol or your leverage in a drawdown, you're, you are giving up the potential a bit of a potential return there. So is that a good thing or not? That's where it gets a lot a lot more su subjective. So yeah, I, I'm curious to get your thoughts as well, because it, it just struck me as I thought of all of these different ways that, that, that are quite subjective. You know, basically, we tend to think about risk management as a separate part, you know, the alpha generation is first, but risk management is separate. But the risk management really reflects so much about the manager's tolerance for risk, their philosophy about what kind of risk they're going to take, and that it really is as much of the alpha generation as, as the signals themselves. No, I think that's a very important point, uh, Alan. And I think if I take a step back and just think about sort of my own um, experience in uh, trend following, I think uh, certainly in the early days, we were basically just grouped into, are you a long-term trend follower? Are you a short-term manager? And, and of course, it's, it's, it's really oversimplifying things uh, completely. So I think one evolution is definitely this thing about, well, you can't really just look at a manager uh, in terms of their look-back uh, you know, periods. That doesn't really say, give, it doesn't give you the full picture. because And this is probably something that I've come to appreciate more and more uh, and and even more so in in the last few years, 
It's the reaction pattern of the risk management framework. I think that's incredibly important. Now, the the other evolution you could say, and you touch on this, and 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 we've certainly spoken about this, uh, you know, a hundred times on the podcast, and that is this thing about, okay, so how do you, how do you manage risk? And I think in the old days we were uh, again just focusing on doing trend following on a trade by trade basis right you have your entry you have your exit you have your you know uh, position size etc and and again we know of course that some of our friends uh, who'll be listening today that's still how they view the world but we also know that m- many more uh, managers are essentially incorporating and and looking at at this at a much more portfolio level on an ongoing basis and what what is striking to me a little bit is that those people who have stayed with looking at these on a trade by trade basis they will argue that oh yeah but it's about the sample size and 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 if you have trades that are not generated by an in, uh, by by a, a, a trend following model per se that sample size you know, doesn't exist. Well, of course it exists. You have as many, as much of a sample size in one approach as you have in the other. Absolutely. So I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that. I also find it a little bit intriguing in um, in the fact that even managers who again do not want to uh, look at changes in correlation, changes in volatility still think that correlations are important enough because they choose a lot of markets because they're not correlated. Well, instead of looking at the markets, whether they're correlated or not, it actually doesn't really matter what their historic correlation has been. What matters is what's the correlation of your current positions. So I think that actually is something that is again a little bit of a um, um, I don't know what the the English word is here, but but again something to de- to 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 discuss and something that differentiates us. So, in many ways, I kind of lean towards the uh, the uh, the way it's evolved by looking at these things in more uh, real time. But I will be the first to say that what what the beauty of trend following is that you don't have to do it the same way f- to make it work. Uh, now, I completely disagree when people say that the old school is better. There's just no evidence for that. So that's purely, that's completely wrong to say that. But I'm not saying that it's bad. I'm just saying you can't say it's better because it's clearly not. There's no evidence of that in the data. But it is um, it is fascinating. And, and I think risk management, just to maybe round it off, is that I think risk management is perhaps some of the secret sauce that we never really talk about. And I think some of the managers that tend to excel over time are probably also some of the best risk managers uh, out there. And so I think this is definitely uh, an incredibly important part. I, I was wondering how you have seen the evolution of risk management from your perspective, looking in at many more managers than I've, I've ever looked yeah. at. Yeah, no, I think that's the thing. I mean, it's just uh, everybody emphasizes it, um, that it's... They're, We've got rig- rigorous risk management. It's in every marketing uh, document that you see. But it does reflect different tolerances, as I say. And possibly, you know, you, I, I guess you could say you might get different techniques um, for different strategies. So say, for example, the question of, around reducing, um, you know, exposure in a drawdown. Um, you know, so, so as I say, some managers will say if we're down 
10%, we're going to cut our risk by X amount, and if we're down 20, we're going to cut, you know. And maybe that's valid for certain types of strategies where you have some inherent concern about whether this thing will be persistent over time, but but probably not for something like trend following, where you really want to have the risk on, um, you know, after a prolonged drawdown, you're, you're waiting for it. So if you, if you, you know, if you delever that portfolio, when you get your recovery, you're not going to be invested. So it's going to be so hard to get out of a drawdown. So if you think about it, if you took that approach to trading the S&P 500, you know, um, from a long perspective, every time the market goes down, you cut your risk, you're, you're not going to harvest uh, the, the long-term uh, risk premium. So something that can sound like prudent and, and sensible actually is can be, you know, detrimental to yeah, counter, counter, counter yeah, exactly. performance. Exactly. At the same time, yeah. um, all of the managers are are basically trying to to manage their their, their risk of ruin ruin you know so it's like what risk are you able to take and and risk of ruin in this sense is you know having a performance profile that can basically put you out of business you know that that's what you're trying to to, to manage that you don't want to um, so something could you know something could actually be optimal for the long term as well and and this comes back to you know the the vol scaling uh, arguments as well so people believe in that that that, that gives you the, the, the highest um, you know compound growth rate but others and we certainly picked this up in in the CTA series will say well we want to be in business so we still have to you know manage the risk and manage the portfolio to deliver a return profile that will be palatable to investors. So so that's an element to it too. And that's why you could get different risk management approaches, whether it's been driven by maybe somebody who managed their own portfolio and then morph, morphed into managing other people's money and they're comfortable with their vol and they're comfortable with that, whereas more of an institution could have a different approach philosophically because it is around an investment business. So I think there's many layers of this to think about. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think definitely good risk management versus bad risk management does show up in track records. I think that that is uh, for sure when you start looking for it. I think you'll, you, you're going to find some some differences. But I also think that those managers who are generally in these indices and have been a, a, around for a long time, I mean, there's a reason why they've been around for a long time. They probably all have pretty good risk management. They may not be the biggest in size. I'm not. That's not what I'm judging it on. I'm judging it on if you've been in business as a trend follower for 20, 30, 40 years, you probably have... A pretty good understanding of how to have robust uh, risk management. And that's unlike many other strategies we've seen come and go or, or managers that we've seen come and go, uh, where it all sounds great. But then, you know, uh, as, as Tyson says, you know, you have a plan until you get knocked in the face and, and so on and so forth. So I'm sure we're going to uh, continue to talk about risk management in many ways. And I, I think, as I, I've said before, and, and maybe even today, I can't remember, <laughs> that trend followers are first and foremost risk management, uh, risk managers, because we don't control what the returns we get from the markets are going to be. We have no influence on that. But what we do do is we influence the risks we want to take. And and therefore, I I really think that people will be surprised to learn that trend following is is first and foremost about risk management. And that should give them some comfort. But just going back to what you said earlier, Alan, and this thing about you know, things can sound uh, like common sense, but actually not be very good. 
same with what we say. When we say to people, well, we're going to be buying the highs or we're going to be selling the lows, that doesn't sound like a very good strategy, frankly, when you, because it's completely opposite what you've learned and heard, you know, buy the low, sell the highs. Well, you know, actually, here's a strategy that does complete opposite and is perhaps one of the most successful strategies of all times uh, over long periods of time. So, um, so yeah, you have to be careful. Uh, the narratives are important and you have to be no, careful. I mean, it's like, um, you know, that. often people will say when you're trading, you know, the, the, if the trade doesn't feel uncomfortable, it's probably not, you know, not the right trade, you know. So it's kind of like that as well. Things that, that ostensibly sound prudent, like managers in a drawdown, okay, we should prudently remove this manager. But actually, the, maybe the investment insight is, no, that's the time when you should be allocating to that manager. So I, I think uh, there's a number of examples of this, as you say, things that, that, that seem prudent, but actually they're not the right thing to do from an investment perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else you want to add uh, from these uh, papers, Alan? No, it's. It, 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 I mean, there's lots of, uh, as we alluded to some of the Transtrend papers, but and, and the Quantica papers is, is worth to read as well. So it's, it's really, I think it's a thing, for, it, it, what strikes me, it's something that investors make up their own minds about what, which approach philosophically fits best with them, as opposed to saying, yes, this is good and this is bad. So I think that's one of the takeaways. It's an ongoing conversation, no doubt, and I'm sure we'll come back to this over time. This was fun, Alan, as usual, and also very insightful, so I appreciate that. Um, and if you also like these conversations and the insights that we share, why don't you jump over to um, uh, your favorite podcast app uh, player and leave a rating and review, um, because they really do matter. Uh, these algos, the AIs behind Apple and Spotify and whatever they're called, they pick up on your reviews and your ratings and it helps us move up the ranks. So uh, please do that if you have a couple of minutes spare. Next week, I'm joined by Mark. So again, another interesting session, I'm sure. It'll be interesting to see what topics he has. Uh, he will be bringing along. And if you have a question for Mark, you can email it to info at toptradersonplug.com and I'll do my best to bring it up uh, at the right time. From Alan and me, thanks ever so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, as usual, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.